Hey guys, welcome to the God Besotted Podcast. I'm your host, Karina, and I'm so glad that you're here. Each week on this show, we dig into God's Word so that we can delight in the God who loved us first. I think it's going to be a good time, so let's just get into it. Well, I want to take you back, if I can, just for a moment to the year 2011, or is it 2011? (laughs) I don't know, but in July 2011, I was 14 years old, and one of the most important days that summer, bar none, was the day that the last Harry Potter movie, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2, came out. Of course, I'd read the book, which had wrapped everything up in the story very neatly. The book had ended with these comforting lines. The scar had not pained Harry for 19 years. All was well. (laughs) But experiencing the end of the series on film, that came with this new energy and this new excitement. So yes, even though I knew the story by heart, still do. I was there at midnight at the release in the summer of 2011, and I was waiting with bated breath as the movie started. And I can still tell you the tagline that was on all the posters leading up to that, that crucial moment. All the posters said, it all ends here. In this episode, we find ourselves at the end the end of our series on praying the Psalms. And I think that the Psalm we're going to look at fittingly is a glimpse of where this all ends. How one day when all is said and done, we will stand alongside people from every tribe and every nation and tongue, and we'll all sing the Lord's praises forever. And he will be worshiped because of his righteousness in rescuing his people. We'll join the everlasting chorus and, like the book said, all will be well. But, like Harry Potter, the road to get there will be long and arduous. We know that from Scripture. And Psalm 22 is one of those passages of Scripture that is viscerally honest about that fact. So although it gives us this glimpse of this glorious future, it doesn't mince words when it comes to describing the road to get there. In 31 verses, the psalm really has ebbs and flows. It has very low lows that suddenly shift in the middle and crescendo into this peak of endless praise. We're going to look at the psalm a little bit differently than usual in very small sections. But if you want to think of the psalm in broader terms, you could divide it into just two sections. The psalmist's plea in verses 1 through 21 and the perpetual praise of God's people in verses 22 through 31. Let's read the psalm in its entirety so that you have a little bit of a sense of the big picture before we dig a bit deeper. Psalm 22, for the choir director, upon the deer of the dawn, which was probably the tune that it was set to, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. O my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I have no rest. 
yet you are holy. O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breasts. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me, a band of evildoers has encompassed me, they pierced my hands and my feet, I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots." But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen. You answer me. I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. From you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow before him, even he who cannot keep his soul alive. Posterity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born, that he has performed it. It's an amazing psalm, right? For so many reasons. So let's just jump right in and talk about it. Verse 1 of the psalm opens on a very severely somber note with 
a question, a loaded question. David, the psalmist, cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as the psalm continues, we see that it's a question posed by someone in deep agony. And it introduces us to the focus of this section of the psalm, verses 1 through 2, which is the psalmist's trial. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then David continues in verse 2, Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. And that's a very clunky translation, but it's really a continuation of verse 1. So the, the psalmist is saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? Continuing that thought and that question, why are you far from delivering me? And why are you far from the words of my groaning? And the first thing to pay attention to is that first phrase, my God, my God. As David prays and cries out to God, he's not crying out to some God. God is his God. They have a deep relationship that could be described using the words from the Song of Solomon. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. There's intimacy and there's history in those words, my God. And the repetition just reinforces that. And yet, despite the closeness of their relationship, the psalmist doesn't feel close to God. In fact, he feels forsaken by God, cast off orphaned. The psalmist doesn't feel that he's the problem. He is showing up. He's showing up where they usually meet for their conversations, but he feels like God hasn't been in the room. He hasn't seen God move in his life, and he hasn't received even a whisper of comfort in response to his continual groaning. He's issuing these guttural, raw cries for help, and he hasn't heard even a whisper in response. He hasn't seen a work of God or heard a word from God. I've said it before on the podcast, but some of the most miserable times in my life have been when God seemed silent. And if you've ever felt like that, or if maybe you feel like that in this season of your life, this psalm is going to encourage you so much that you are not alone. You are not alone in feeling that way. All through history, there have been believers who have been close to God and yet have experienced dry spells, seasons where God seems aloof, where God seems far off, where the believer feels forsaken. So maybe the words of David in verse 2, as he continues, sound like you right now, sound like maybe they could have been taken from a page of your journal. Maybe these words sound like an echo of your own cries to God. David says, Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I have no rest. What an excruciating place to be. And there was someone else who experienced this, someone who suffered infinitely greater anguish even than this, and that someone, of course, is, is Jesus. And your first thought when you heard that first line of the psalm was probably of Jesus' dying words while he was on the cross. 
We're told in scripture that he uttered this same sentence. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, Jesus took upon himself sin. And in some way, in some sense, he even became sin. That's how Second Corinthians puts it. For us. He was forsaken so that we never would be. And God turned his face away from his own son so that we could become his sons and daughters in him. And that brings us to an important note as we go along. This psalm is what's called a messianic psalm, a psalm that points us to Jesus, the Messiah. It's mentioned no less than 24 times in the New Testament, and it does have a lot of New Testament significance. David, the psalmist's experience, is fulfilled in the person of Christ in several ways. But I don't want us to miss all the meaning that this psalm has on its own or the application that it has for our lives by being hyper-focused on how it's fulfilled in the New Testament. So that's just a note as we go along that if you're thinking about Jesus when you're hearing those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's not a bad thing. But I would invite you to consider the psalm in its own context, and we will draw some comparisons and look at it from a New Testament lens as we go along. But consider it in its own context and also consider how uh, you might pray this psalm, how it might apply to you in different seasons of your life. So that's just a note. So that was verses 1 through 2, the psalmist's trial. Now we're going to look at verses 3 through 5. The psalmist has this emphatic shift where he says, Yet you, yet you are holy, O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. The psalmist is turning from his own sense of abandonment, his own fear that God is absent and silent, to look at God's proven track record. He says, yet you, and there's this emphatic, deliberate look to heaven, away from his circumstances, away from his feelings, to heaven, where the holy God sits enthroned upon the praise of his people. You may have heard that phrase in worship songs. You may have heard it um, translated, you inhabit the praises of your people, which is the KJV. The point of the picture is that God is surrounded by praise at all times, specifically the praises of his people. And he is set apart and lifted up. But verse four, in you, our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. Although he is high and lifted up, he stoops down. It's his pattern. It's his thing. He comes down and he delivers his people over and over again. You can almost feel David working himself into a frenzy, thinking about how often this had happened before. He says, they trusted and you delivered. They cried out and you delivered. They trusted and you did not disappoint them. So in the midst of feeling like God is absent and God is silent and God has abandoned him, David remembers the times when God has been present, the times when God has spoken, the times when God has delivered his people throughout the generations. 
He had been faithful to his people, and David was a part of that people of God. And so, even in this section, as he looks at God and considers God's track record, the question hangs in the air. Okay, so why me? Why am I forsaken when I am among the people of God, when God has never forsaken his people before? And that's precisely where David goes next. He moves from God's track record and his attention goes inward again to his own sense of insecurity and his feeling of isolation. Verses 6 through 8 say, But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip, they wag the head, saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him, God, deliver him, the psalmist. Let God rescue him because he, God, delights in him. Imagine for a moment that you were asked to give a speech. And before you accept, before you say yes, you want to know, okay, well, who am I giving the speech to? Who's my audience? Well, imagine if you were told by the people who asked you to give the speech that your audience was going to be your best friend and your husband. Well, chances are you'd say, okay, no sweat. I can do that. You'd be empowered to do it because, hey, it's family. There's no pressure. But now imagine, on the flip side, if you were asked to give the speech and it was to a group of people who hate you. I'm talking about your ex-best friend or your ex and now the stakes are higher now you might not feel so confident and so here's the thing there is nothing and and I truly believe nothing more empowering than the feeling of being loved not just the knowledge of it but the experience of being loved there is no substance there is no high, there is no uh, life event, no moment uh, jumping off a building or accomplishing some task. Nothing could match the sense that you get when you are undeniably loved and you, and you feel that. Well, the psalmist who's feeling like God doesn't even care about him, he can't love himself. He can't look in the mirror. He doesn't even feel human. He says, I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. As he feels this sense of being abandoned by God, he can't even look at himself. He feels like this disgusting blight on society, like he is someone that people shudder at and look away from, someone that people walk on the other side of the sidewalk to avoid passing by you. Someone who people wash their hands after touching. And as the psalm goes on, we're going to see that he's right about that. And so in the midst of this trial, without God, the psalmist feels completely alone. There's him and then there's everybody else. And he hears people whispering about him. And they're saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let God deliver you. Let God rescue you because he supposedly delights in you. And what these people are saying is, is similar to what Job's friends said to him. These people are listening to the same sermons that Job's friends were listening to. They believe that because David is experiencing distress, 
because God has not stepped in to deliver, then God does not delight in him. What they didn't know is that God's delight doesn't always look like the deliverance we expect. God's delight does not always look like the deliverance that we expect. Look at Jesus. Twice in his life, at his baptism and again at his transfiguration, God declared publicly, shouting from heaven about Jesus, about his son, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I mean, God literally shouted it from the heavens. He says, this is my son my beloved son. And I'm not just pleased with him. He's not just okay. I am delighted in him. I'm well pleased by him. And yet, despite that delight, God allowed him to suffer excruciating, emotional, mental, physical, and spiritual distress. And God did not step in to deliver Jesus the way that people expected. In fact, the crowd said to Jesus exactly what David says people were saying to him in Matthew 26. They quote from the Old Testament and they say, commit yourself to God. If God delighted in you, he would deliver. But we don't see God have angels swoop down to pull Jesus off the cross We don't see God empowering Jesus by the Spirit with supernatural strength to yank the nails out and jump off the cross. God let Jesus hang there. God let him lay in the tomb while his disciples were mourning and hiding. What I'm getting at is I want us, including myself, to beware the lie of the enemy whether it's coming from a voice in our own heads or from the mouths of well-meaning Christians, beware the lie that says if God loved you, he would pull you out of the dark place where you are. He would beat the cancer. He would give you a steady job. He would keep your church from splitting. What we're going to see in this psalm in the case of David and what we see in the life of Christ is that God's delight and our dark places are not incompatible. God's delight and our dark places are not incompatible. God uses our dry seasons to make us value his voice. He uses the comfort that we receive when we're suffering so that we can comfort others. And he used Jesus' death to destroy darkness once and for all. And when he raised Jesus from the dead, he reminded all those naysayers that God delights in his son. He loves the son with a love that we can't even fathom. Yet it's a love that we get to experience more and more if we're in Christ. And so there is no one-size-fits-all solution to suffering. Just like it wasn't true during Job's day, it was not true in David's day. Just because David was in a pit, just because he was in a bind, just because he was in a near-death experience did not mean that God didn't delight in him. And that's why, 
even though David had looked back at past deliverances, had looked back at the times when God had been faithful to deliver his people, those moments don't comfort him right now because that's not his experience right now. So he says in verse 9, yet you, and there's that emphatic turn again, yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breasts. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Essentially, David is saying, God, you're the one who gave me life. You're the one who drew me close to you. You initiated this relationship. You, you even initiated my life. You did that. What could I have done all this time but trust in you? We come back to that wording, you've been my God from my mother's womb. David had been trusting God, and he had been seeing God answer throughout his life. God had delivered him in the past, and that was why God's silence hurt so much in the present. So in verses 11 through 21, this is the psalmist's plea. Be not far from me. He says it twice at the beginning and the end of this section of the psalm, and it's calling back to his original complaint, his original description of his trial in verse 1, where he said, Why are you far from the words of my groaning? Why are you far from delivering me? So in verse 11, he says, Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. And as he starts to describe this trouble, we're going to see just how dire his situation is. In verse 12, he says, Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. And you lay me in the dust of death." The psalmist sees how God is intimately involved with everything that happens to him. And so he knows that even his suffering is in God's control. Verse 16, for dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. They're auctioning off his clothes. Verse 19, But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver me from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen, you answer me. This situation is dire, to say the least. David is surrounded by enemies that are so fierce he compares them to wild animals. And we learn he's about to be executed. In fact, he's about to be crucified. He has got no one to help him except God. And here's where the prophetic significance of Psalm 22 really comes into full view. That we know of, David was never literally in a situation where he was very nearly crucified. It's almost unheard of in the time and context that he was living in. But Acts 3.20 calls David a prophet. And so this is surely a look ahead 
to what would befall Jesus, God's Son. We won't go through all the passages that describe the fulfillment of this part of the psalm, but there are so many um, correlations, and I'm going to include some of them in the episode description so that you can check them out later. But the point of this section is that here's the psalmist, utterly desolate. He is pinned down, literally, and the end is near. He has got no hope left. But then what's so amazing is that after he cries out for the second time, bracketing this section, cries out that God, don't be far off, don't be far away from me, at that second outcry, the tone shifts. And David says, save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen, you answer me. Those three words, just a sigh of relief, an incredible moment, an incredible shift. The point is that at the last moment, in the final hour, God answers, God intervenes, God delivers. And the psalmist's plea, what he's been crying out for this entire time, becomes his testimony in verses 22 through 24. He says, I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. And now he's calling out to the congregation, the believing congregation of Israel. He says, all you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you descendants of Israel. Why? Verse 24. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. At the end of his trial, David can say with certainty, God does not despise or abhor the affliction of the afflicted. David despised it. David couldn't even look at himself in the mirror. But he says God hasn't hidden his face. God is looking on. And when God's people cry to him for help, he hears them. He's not silent. He's not aloof. He is looking on and he is listening. And so finally, truth is vindicated. If the psalmist ever doubted it, there is no denying it now. All the crying that he did in verse 2 was being heard by God. Every word. Although God seemed silent and he seemed aloof, God was near. He was near enough to hear David's cries, and the time had finally come for God to respond. God wasn't sick of hearing it. He wasn't rolling his eyes. He doesn't detest our neediness. I just think that's so amazing and so comforting. In fact, throughout Scripture, we see that our neediness is the very thing that engages God. The thing that fires him up into action is our need. I've been reading the Gospel of Matthew, and I have just been struck by how often we read that Jesus had compassion on people. He had compassion on people over and over again. He feels for people in the deepest part of his being. In the bowels of his body, he feels for people. The most fundamental core of who he is, his heart, is that he is compassionate. 
And this compassion isn't simply a feeling, a, a feeling of pity or a feeling of sympathy. It's, it is the utmost empathy. It's stepping in. It's active. I love the way Dane Ortland puts it in Gentle and Lowly, his, his book that I mentioned last episode. He says, Christ doesn't simply meet us at our place of need. He lives in our place of need. He never tires of sweeping us into his tender embrace. It is his very heart. It is what gets him out of bed in the morning. So if you're listening and you feel still like a barely flickering flame, like a fire that's about to go out, or like a stalk of grain that's bent beyond ever producing grain ever again, I want to comfort you with what scripture says of Jesus. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He is gentle, and he is compassionate. David knows now, at this point in the psalm, beyond the shadow of a doubt, that God cares deeply about those who suffer. He draws near to them, and he springs into action and helps them. All of history's testimony about God and his track record and the way he steps in for his people, all of that, those generations of faithfulness that David was remembering, now it's his experience. Now it's happening for him, and he knows it's true. And so on that note, he concludes the psalm in this glorious crescendo. He looks forward to the day when his praise is joined by the praise of the entire world, when his testimony is going to be sung alongside a hundred thousand million other people with a similar testimony. In verses 25 through 31, he says, From you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. And then in verse 27, All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow before him, even he who cannot keep his soul alive. Posterity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generations. And here's, here's the part we're going to focus on. They will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born, that he has performed it. All the ends of the earth... Every family of every nation, everyone will bow before the Lord. Generation after generation will praise the Lord. Why? Verse 31 tells us they will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has performed it. I like the way the NIV puts it. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. Why is it that God's righteousness is being proclaimed? Why isn't his deliverance or his rescue that he accomplished for David being, being lifted up? Why is it his righteousness? Well, we talked about this in episode 36, back in our Attributes of God series, but we, we should repeat it here. God's righteousness, that aspect of his character, means that he always acts in accordance with what is right. He himself, his character, is the standard of what is right. And throughout the Old Testament, 
we see God choosing, making the choice to bind himself to a promise that when people believe, when people put their trust in him, when they throw themselves upon him in faith and believing dependence, he will respond. He makes that promise. In fact, we learn through the life of Abraham in Genesis 15 that God chose to count, to consider faith as righteousness. People were sinners then, just like now, who did not deserve God's rescue. But in his righteousness, in his, in his keeping of his own promise, he chose to honor and respond to faith. So often in the Old Testament, we see God's righteousness connected to his acts of salvation, of deliverance, of rescue. And here in Psalm 22, it's no different. David predicts that generation after generation will praise God. And whereas in the opening verse, David had asked God why God was far from delivering him. Now, David says one day, people will come and declare God's righteousness to a people who haven't even been born, that he has performed it. He did deliver. He has done it. And we know that in Christ, God has accomplished the greatest deliverance. He has made a way for us once and for all to be with him forever. And through Jesus, whose name means Jehovah is salvation, Jehovah is deliverance, God has done it. Or, as Jesus put it when he breathed his last and gave his life for us, it is finished. Well, that's a wrap on our Praying the Psalms series. I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope that it's helped you pray more honestly and more boldly. And I hope that through this series, you've seen more and more of the goodness of the God who's spoken to us in his word. And I want to encourage you as we close to take some time on your own to pray through Psalm 22, whether it's for a friend who's going through a difficult season or for yourself. Make sure you take some time meditating on thinking about verse 21, that shift when God answers David and praise God for how he'll answer your prayer. Even if you're still waiting on him to answer, know that he will respond. He is near he hears us and he does deliver us, even if it's not the way we expect. The same God who raised Jesus from the dead, accomplishing our salvation so that Jesus could say confidently, it is finished, is in you and is with you. He was and he is and he will be faithful. And we can trust that. We can stake our lives on that. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the God Besotted Podcast. I'm so grateful for every opportunity that I get to share God's word with you so that we can all know him more deeply and love him and his people more. If you're loving this podcast, I'd so appreciate it if you left a rating or a review wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at God Besotted or on Facebook at the God Besotted Podcast. I would love to connect with you there. Until next time, may we rest in the high, deep, wide, and long love of God for us, and may we be God-besotted in all we do.